Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. My name is Miriam Knight, and today we have our reviewers roundtable again, discussing some of the books that made a particularly big impression on us. Joining us today are Julie Clayton and Cynthia Sue Larson, our really top-notch reviewers. Um, and we're going to start with Cynthia Sue because she has um, one more book than the rest of us to discuss. Cynthia is a best-selling author, life coach, and inspirational teacher who is known as the Quantum Optimist for helping people discover their many possible selves and to jump into their favorite lives while staying focused on the question, how good can it get? Cynthia has been featured on the Discovery Channel, the History Channel, Coast to Coast AM, and the BBC and you can watch her YouTube videos and subscribe to her free e-zine at realityshifters.com. Cynthia, my dear, welcome. Oh, thank you. And Julie, great. welcome to you too. Thanks. Glad to be here again. <laughs> Cynthia, why don't you kick us off? Oh, wonderful. Well, I've got this amazing book that I think everybody that's listening can really relate to, especially parents. Um, it's, it's very unusual. The, the title is Conduit, a love story before, during, and after life. And this is written by Johnny Gray, who has a PhD. And her story, it sounds, um, it sounds very intense because it relates how she felt after her son Connor passed away very unexpectedly, suddenly in a car accident at the age of 22. And that was her only son. Not only was it her only son, but it was in some ways her twin flame in life. It was such a close friend. Um, he, he meant so much to her. Um, but although this idea of outliving someone, your, your own child, it, it seems unthinkable. And I have, I'm a mother of two daughters. So for me, feeling um, how strongly I relate to this story that she tells. It's very intense. I know a lot of parents face this kind of a reality. Um, but what I find amazing, in fact, inspirational about this book is that it shows how Johnny, the author, is able to tune into her energetic conscious vibrations and really sense the essence of her son, as many of us can do when our loved ones pass on. But um, as she was asking these questions, why, as we do when our loved ones pass on, pretty much no matter how old they are, I do, <laughs> but when they're 22, my goodness, uh, she wanted to know what's going on with this, what's the purpose, and by asking these questions, and by virtue of the fact that she actually, Johnny actually works as a, um, uh, she works as a, a person who helps people relate to their past lives, and so she can do this kind of a transformative interpretation. She has a doctorate in transpersonal psychology, and she works as a past life regression therapist. Uh, the thing is, when you're looking at your own situation, it's a little bit more challenging usually. So I, I just cried tears of love as I was reading this book. But, but what happened as I read it is I went through this process with Johnny as she started recognizing, and I just want to read a few sentences, a few short ones. She says, our immortal spiritual self is more real than anything we perceive in this physical realm. Death doesn't stop love. It doesn't take away relationship. Connor is free and blissful. He radiates serenity, compassion, and wisdom. He is in the love, and death is no match for love. I feel enriched by loving Connor instead of feeling deprived by the loss of his form. 
and, and this is the key to the whole book. I feel like I, just as I, as you can get that sense of presence of people in your lives when they're there and miss them when they're, they don't come to an event or something, you, you get this tangible feeling about people and you can still have that sense of joyfulness, clarity, confidence, inspiration, hope, and love when otherwise you wouldn't have those feelings or those ideas. So I could really resonate with, as um, Johnny calls her son, Connor 2.0, like this is an expanded (laughs) version of himself. (laughs) Yeah, and I was laughing too. I mean, it sounds crazy. Why would you laugh reading a book about death? But it really, this book, um, recognizing the old soul quality of this young man, who people loved so much. And there were there are quotes in this book that he said, things he wrote. He obviously had a very in-tune, harmonious sense of subtle energies in the world. And he was the one that inspired Johnny to pursue the work that she now does as a past life regressionist. So anyway, I would give this book high, high recommendations because all of us know somebody uh, or will know somebody close to us that passes on. And I think just getting to that level of recognizing that there's so much more that you can keep talking about people as in present tense because there's that essence of them that's still with us. You know, for someone who has lost a child, um, there's there's obviously nothing more devastating, but there's also um, nothing more, um, I guess, renewing of your will to live and go on, renewing of your love of life, then knowing that the connection with your child persists and that they're, and, and your child um, not only persists, is living, but is living and still growing. We've had so many books of this genre. I remember um, Susie Ward's books, um, uh, what was the name of her child? Adam, I think. Um, yes. and, um, uh, Terry Daniel, um, A Swan in Heaven. Um, I mean, there just, just been a slew of these books. And it's funny, but, you know, each time you read a book about, um, a child coming back or, or kind of, proof of life after death it's like it's nibbling away at this wall of disbelief you you don't read one book and you suddenly say okay i believe right you you have to hear the message over and over again in in fact it's interesting terry daniel who wrote a swan in heaven um is the organizer of something called the afterlife awareness conference which started out as a parent support group for parents who have lost their children. And it's developed into this whole um, afterlife awareness um, environment. And really, if you know without a shadow of a doubt that life persists, how would you live your life differently now? Right. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think when people know there's something they can do actively um, because it it overcomes that paralysis that can occur. And when you're familiar with the idea of after-death communications, such as the Guggenheimers talk about in their book, I think that by the same name, after-death communications, ADCs, um, then you, you recognize different ways you can keep that line of communication open. It doesn't have to be the end when someone dies or passes on. 
Indeed. And and there was this um, wonderful therapist, whose name will come back to me in a moment, um, who wrote a book about dealing with PTSD using past life regression, or, or actually he's calling it um, past life communication, right. where the, uh, the subjects went into a communication with the people in their lives who had traumatized them. It was either in the, in the context of, of childhood abuse or in the context of war. And actually being able to have this communication relieved the trauma that they were carrying with them every single day. So this whole area of past life regression, past life communication is just a wonderful development that's, I believe, going mainstream. Yeah, I'm glad it is, too, because it seems like, as you say, it helps people live a lighter, happier, more joyful life rather than being consumed by sadness and depression that could happen otherwise. Yeah. Okay, Julie, what have you got for us? Uh, I have a book called The Nature of Reality, Akashic Guidance for Understanding Life and Its Purpose. And it is by Angel Rose O'Grady. <laughs> Love the name. <laughs> um, and listeners may actually be aware of Angel. She um, has written several books um, about Catholic guidance. What I really loved about this book, well, first of all, let me back up a little bit and say what Akashic means. Uh, it's a Sanskrit word, meaning literally ether. And what it implies is a spiritual plane or a, a substance where the entire history of the life of the cosmos and the knowledge of all human experience is recorded and kept. Um, and many Many authors have written about the Akashic field, the Akashic library. It's called the library. It was derived from Hindu philosophy um, and became more popularized in the 19th century theosophical movement. So there, there is this, this belief that there is this library where all human experience is recorded and that we can access that library and uh, we all have access to it, however, the level or degree of our consciousness, meaning, I think, really meaning self-awareness, uh, determines how, how well we can access that or how easily or readily. And in this book, uh, the author channels information from the records. She, uh, as a meditator, she would on her own spiritual journey, she would spontaneously find herself in that place, in the records, and began to understand that A, there was a per purpose for her personally, uh, but also that this was something that she had to and wanted to share with the world, uh, you know, allow other people to have access to information that comes from this source. And what I love about the book, you know, <laughs> Whenever, whenever I see a book like this, I always have, there, there's a skeptic in me that says, hmm, uh, you know, someone else just trying to, to uh, present their version of what reality is. And, and I was pleasantly, delightfully surprised because there, while I, I didn't jump into everything she said wholesale, there was so much that resonated 
in a reasoning, reasonable, logical way um, that I pondered it and I had to really dig into my own mind to, to, to try to understand what it meant for me. She, it is in question answer format through her channeling and she talks about things such as God and original creation, exploring DNA, consciousness, angels, archangels and ascended masters, love, time and dimensions, dreams, the brain, light bodies, kundalini, chakras, the future. She really covered the wide swath. And I, I would strongly encourage people to, if they, especially if they're like me, and start off with that little bit of a skepticism, to read this book and digest the insight and wisdom that is contained within it to further our own personal understanding of it. Um, this book actually came out in November of last year. Um, and, and her purpose for writing it is really to understand that you know, our own evolution of our nature into our sort of God presence, our, our ex expanded self and the meaning and purpose of our lives. Um, so that, again, the book is The Nature of Reality, Akashic Guidance for Understanding Life and Its Purpose, and it is by Angel Rose O'Grady. I have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Just have to do that. <laughs> Well, if there is anyone among us who is the queen of the Akashic Records, it is Cynthia. Um, Cynthia, uh, what do you think, uh, there have been so many books about the Akashic Records. What is your uh, notion of what they are? Well, you know, I've got a background in physics, so I'm just saying that to preface everything. <laughs> At the same time, I would describe myself really as a mystic. So um, I want to just give some background as to my answer. So I've got, I've got sort of two minds about it. And one is from the physics standpoint that it makes sense that there would be this, um, you can think of it as this field of knowledge that's available to everyone that contains all possible realities and all possible, if you think of in terms of, there being a quantum nature of reality at the core of everything and that we are playing with these possibilities. But in the very real sense, we have access to what you might consider the most interesting outcomes, the most interesting information. And so that is something that we can access non-locally, again, presuming a very quantum basis for all reality because we're all connected, we're all as one. So it means that there's an entanglement going on that... I'm using some physics terms here. <laughs> but what does that mean from a mystical perspective? It means that you often just have this sense of knowingness about things that there's no way that you could possibly have known. Uh, for example, the layout of a city of Rome, and you can just run around like a local, like you lived there, because in some very real sense, you're certain that you did. And if you just access those memories, and it doesn't make any logical sense, but I have friends who've done this. Those run through the ancient streets of a town in Italy, in a village, as if they lived there, knowing everything about how to get from one strange area, small, convoluted section to another, just zooming with no access to, um, you know, any kind of a GPS system or anything like that. And that, that's just one of a multitude of examples. So we can be very skeptical about this and say, well, that's hogwash that there could be any archive of great records. But 
when you look at it from either the physical stand, um, the, the basis in physics where you can recognize, actually it makes sense that there would be this field of knowledge, if you want to call it that, um, because how else could things be orchestrated in such a way that our universe is as fine-tuned as it is? I don't want to go way off into the physics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm trying to keep it light. Um, but then from the mystical side, just your own experience. How many times have you had these things, these aspects of knowingness that the only way to explain it is that you're tuning in to something very much like a library. And this happened to me a lot when I worked at Citibank. I could instantly put on my legal hat and be writing and thinking like a lawyer. Um, it's what I would call like a quantum jump into that reality. But it's also very much accessing this field of this body of knowledge that we all have access to. You can, when you start learning how to ask questions, meditate and get answers, you can absolutely have access to all the knowledge that's out there without the internet or Google or anything like that. You can go on the internet. Hmm. I, I wanted to just add that one of the questions in this book um, to, to ground this a little bit is what are some practical things we can do to grow in awareness and become more conscious? So that's one of the questions that Angel is, is asking of source when she's in meditation and, and channeling. And the answer is not a surprise. Uh, however, it, it, it's interesting that it just keeps, the same answer keeps coming up. And what Source says, she, and she says, quote, Source is saying that the very first thing to do is to have the desire to know yourself. This may not sound like a practical application, but we have to remember what comes to us in our perceptual field is the result of our desires and thoughts. And if you really want to shift your consciousness, the first and most important step is to have the desire and willingness to inquire or meditate. Uh, You can also partake in release work or energy work that is designed to help shift your energy and awaken your higher centers. So once again, it always comes back to doing the inner work in order to uh, determine the nature of the outer world. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, what a perfect segue to the book that I wanted to talk about. Oh, oh. <clears throat> um, it's called Walking Home, A Pilgrimage from Humble to Healed by Sonia Choquette. And I feel a little awkward talking about it since I just interviewed Sonia last week. But it was such a lovely book that I, I really did want to uh, to give it a quick review on this show. Um, and it's a great follow on to what you were just saying, Julia, because the um, only way that you can get through the issues that cause your life to implode, like uh, with with Sonia, they just caused her life to fall apart. Um, her dad died, her brother died, her marriage broke up, and she was wondering, who am I? This is a question that so many people who ostensibly have it all together um, are asking themselves, you know, okay, I've gotten this far. Do I really know who I am? Am I really um, living my purpose? In the case of Sonia, yes, she was living her purpose. But why wasn't she happy? What was preventing her from feeling that joy that she was teaching all of her clients, all of her students about? 
And she had to walk the Camino de Santiago. I mean, she walked like something like 500 kilometers, um, totally trashed her feet. But um, little by little, just the, the, the kind of meditation of walking in nature, plodding on mile after mile with only the universe for company, um, just peeled off the layers of of protection that she had placed over herself. And she was able to go back into her relationship with her father, with her mother, with her, her um, significant others, and see what the dynamic was, where she was wounded, where she was carrying these wounds into her present interactions with other people. And when you say you have to do the work, there really is no getting away from it. You have to look at yourself in the most clear-eyed way and see where your reactions are not really justified by the situation, where they're coming from, the past hurts, the past disappointments that have put up this wall of protection around you so you feel that you need to react and, and protect yourself. So... Um, uh, you don't necessarily have to walk 500 miles uh, and and trash your feet. Um, you don't have to go to a pilgrimage um, across the Pyrenees. But you do have to connect in with who you really are, and meditation is probably the best way to do it. So that was Walking Home by Sonia Choquette. I, I think, too, Miriam, you, you know, we have read many stories of people who walk the Camino, uh, do that pilgrimage, and have similar experiences. And it's as much as you're right, I mean, one doesn't have to go to such extremes, perhaps. But what does, I think, have to happen is the commitment, that same level of commitment in our daily life, if we really want to get into the deep layers of our, our inner space. Um, the, the commitment to to it has to be not has to be wants to be that that fulfilling that intense that you know straightforward Clothing. yeah yeah, yeah. consuming um, mm-hmm. because it's so easy in our day to day lives to to not allow that to come into our space there's there's so much so many other things to distract us and keep us busy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so if we can stay true to that commitment, even if we only spend 20, 30 minutes a day, if the degree of, of intention and commitment is there, I think people can um, access those places for themselves in a more gentle and pragmatic way, perhaps. Sure. Even five to ten minutes a day would do wonders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I like what you said, Miriam, about the masks and letting that down. It reminds me of getting to a place of surrender, and I think that's something that's wonderful on that walk on the Camino, is to be surrounded by nature. <clears throat> and I haven't walked that walk, but I, but I do have walks often in nature, and I feel that sense of surrender and and that feeling that the masks are coming down, and ties in with the earlier comment that Julie made about this um, amazing question of getting to know yourself, and I think that's the key. Mm-hmm. It all ties together. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So.
Cynthia, what do you have next for us? Oh, well, I do have a book that, of course, ties in with what we're talking about. Um, it's funny that. <laughs> I know. How does this work? <laughs> I love it. So it's called Radical Relationship Resource, a guide for repairing, letting go, or moving on. And it's written by Dr. Carol Morgan and Dick Sutphin. And this is really a remarkable book. It's it's not what, what I – I didn't know what to expect, but when I got it, I, I was – quite surprised that it really covers about 20 or 25. How many are there? I'm looking at it right now. Okay, 25 basic complaints or primary issues that tend to occur in relationships. And these are just basic things that come up again and again and again. And so the authors, in the process of giving relationship advice and consultations, started noticing a number of patterns that cropped up, such as one person complains about failed expectations, unmet needs, or immaturity or selfishness, or lack of ambition of the other, um, in-law problems, financial disagreements and hardships, adultery and cheating, and so forth. Um, so, but so what's remarkable to me about this book is that they can take each of these twenty-five issues and then just on a single page for each one, break down a few sentences describing common causes, a little paragraph of the general viewpoint, which is kind of the socially accepted viewpoint, but then the radical viewpoint pops up. This is where this book really departs um, from most other relationship books. And it's, that's, this is also why it's so perfect for individuals such as those of us here that listen to the show and do the show and read these kind of books um, and are on a path toward enlightenment. Those of us that are working on self-growth uh, might not want to see things the way that the standard view is. Um, so for something like jealousy and possessiveness, for example, um, the radical viewpoint describes, um, well, backing up, you know, if one partner is jealous of the other, then they can be um, very possessive, very controlling and defensive and aggressive and all that. So the general viewpoint would be <clears throat> that the tighter you hold on to someone, then the more they slip through your fingers. No one can possess another person. But then the radical viewpoint is where it gets kind of cool. And it points out that those who are jealous and attempt to possess are themselves possessed, who are slaves to their own illusions about life. And possessiveness is a denial of the right of people and things to live and change. Thus, the possessor will push their partner away. Okay, so this is where it gets interesting. But this is just a tiny bit of the book. It really takes off in section two, which is all about tips for maintenance and repair. And then they've got radical tips, too. So the radical is just not worrying so much about what society thinks and getting more into the truth and the reality of who the individuals involved really are. And and so the tips for maintenance and repair, they sound very basic, but they're phenomenal. It, it has everything to do about, um, you know, getting into stop being a victim, for example. Sometimes we do that without noticing we're doing it. Face your problems. Um, take all the blame. This is, um, that, that's kind of bizarre, but when you recognize... But um, all things considered, why not accept all the blame? After all, you're karmically responsible anyway, and it will end the arguing. We're all working toward enlightenment, is what it says. And it goes on. So these are radical tips for sure. And then the end of the book gets really radical, and it goes into things that I think are super cool, such as making contact with your future self and using automatic writing to find answers. Um, And then some things that are kind of common, like write a thank you letter to the universe, uh, and some things that are not so common, such as take a lover. So, I mean, th- this book is really, it's something else again. I- I've never seen anything quite like it. And actually, I love it. I, I really, another part that I love is when things fa- fall apart and completely collapse, how to go with the flow. 
um, you know, get into that state of grace after the breakup and the breakdown and learn from the mistakes that you've gone through. You know, learn not to compromise on things you shouldn't compromise on. Find your pa- passion and desire again and so forth. So this is way more than than you'd expect in such a short book. I mean, it, considering everything that I've just talked about, this book is only a couple hundred pages long. So you can definitely tuck it in a small bag and take it with you. It's it's quite amazing. So highly recommended. And it's good if you want to salvage a relationship or if you recognize it's all over, it's too late to salvage, but where do I go from here and what the heck happened? It is perfect for all those reasons. Cool. And Radical Relationship Resource by Dr. Carol Morgan and Dick Sutphin. You know, it reminds me of raising your children. You invest so much time and energy into showing them how to conform to society and to um, sublimate their desires, sublimate their personalities to what society expects from them. And, um, you know, if, if we knew then what we know now as adults, uh, I know I would have raised my children very differently. So oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's, you've got you to go a little farther than that. Because <laughs> people are listening. It's not too late. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it, it's what uh, Don Miguel Ruiz calls domestication. You domesticate your children into... Um, understanding what society expects from them uh, in their behavior. Um, yes, they have to learn how to get along in society, how not to uh, ruffle feathers, but sometimes feathers need to be ruffled. And um, the, the delicate balancing act is how to raise children who are capable of functioning within societal norms, but who have not lost that spark of divine connection, who have lost, not lost that sense of themselves as creators, um, haven't lost the light, the fire in their eyes that they had when they were small children. Yeah, I love that. And that ease of making friends. Do you remember that? You could just look at someone like, do you want to be my friend? And they say, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see adults do that. Yeah. <laughs> Where yeah. did that go? <laughs> okay. Julie, what have you got next? I have a book that actually has not been released yet. It's coming out in November of this year. And uh, it is called Guided, A True Story. Spirit Guide Angels Were Her Best Friends and Life Coaches. Uh, and the author's name is Linda Deer, D-E-I-R. And following on Cynthia's discussion about radical relationships, uh, this is radical relationship resource uh, based on a true story of the author being terribly abused by her mother. And so I know that Cynthia's book was more about adults in relationship, but interestingly enough, um, some of the things Cynthia spoke to relate to this book as well. It is a quite a gripping story uh, from from the get-go. The author Linda uh, was her mother was 
in retrospect, she, she realizes her mother was actually very jealous of her and uh, very controlling and aggressive and abusive. And at 20 months old, this little toddler in diapers ran away from home, <laughs> literally ran away from home and was picked up by the police who were walking along the median of a, an expressway. She obviously didn't have the, the wherewithal to, to understand what was going on as an adult would, but she knew she had to get out of there. Um, and of course went back and, and spent the rest of her life still contending with her mother. What happened, however, is that at 20 months old, her, what she calls her spirit guide angels, came into her presence, came into her awareness. And they started with a dream, a recurring dream, a single repetitive dream, um, showing her what her job was to be in this lifetime, which she now knows is to show others how they can overcome their fears so they too can live the life that they intended to live. And unlike many memoirs of um, abused children, the focus is not on the abuse. The focus is on the messages that the spirit guides have shared with her throughout the years and on the relationship. The guides actually said to her as a child, life will get better for you as you get older if you can survive childhood. And she said this, turn, this promise turned out to be both a prophecy and a warning, and it became eerily true in my life. And it, as I say, it is a, it is a gripping book, um, and the messages really do, uh, I think, uplift people and, and really can help someone else who might be feeling the same degree of fear, whether it comes from a different context or not. And um, I highly recommend reading it. She also, the cover, has a photograph of one of her spirit guides, which spontaneously the, the guide presented itself in manifest form just when she happened to have a camera in her hand deliberately so that uh, Linda could use that photograph to put on the cover of her book, and that is quite intriguing, and uh, which you will be able to see in November. So again, the book is called Guided, A True Story. Spirit Guide Angels Were Her Best Friends and Life Coaches, and it is by Linda Deer, D-E-I-R, uh, and you can look at the book on at lindadeer.com. She currently lives in Sedona, Arizona, and does channeled readings. Cool. I actually, yeah, I, I saw the cover of that book, and it's fascinating. It, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Great. Okay, Cynthia, back to you. <clears throat> oh, I've got a question for Julie just about the this photograph of the spirit guide. How did that come to happen? I mean, that, that sounds like an amazing situation because I've had spirit guides but never seen photos of my guides. So just curious about... Did you ever ask them if you could take their picture? I haven't really felt a need. I have so many guides, it would be like a crowd of light. <laughs> so it would be like, like, oh my gosh, I'm blinded. That's what it feels like to me. So I see them just fine, and I don't feel a need for a photograph. So, um, I, you know, obviously. 
I write about in my book or advantage. I describe how to use a camera to get aura photos and spirit photos. So I'm familiar with the process. I was just curious about this author's particular experience. From from what I understand, it, although it seemed coincidental, it was really a gift from the spirit guides themselves that she would have some physical evidence that others could see. Um, she does say that they take different forms and different shapes and often are more energetic. Well, they are energetic, actually. She says their essence interacts with the electromagnetism in our dimension, which is what enables us to see them when we do see them. Uh, but it really was orchestrated by her guides as part of their support for her journey and um, getting this book written and out into the world. That's wonderful. I, I just Thank you for sharing the details. <laughs> I, I find the details fascinating. And, and, mm-hmm. Just like all these other things, like so many people walk the Camino, so many people have children that die, so many people get photos of spirits. I just wanted to know her unique experience because it is something I write about and share with people. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. So, so my next book is, um, let's talk about that. It's called The Neurotic's Guide to Avoiding Enlightenment. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I just have to laugh when you hear that. And then the subtitle is How the Left Brain Plays Unending Games of Self-Improvement. The author is Chris Niebauer, who has a Ph.D., and that Ph.D. is in Cognitive Neuropsychology from the University of Toledo, and he is a specialist in left-right brain differences. So he currently is a professor at Slippery Rock University in Pennsylvania, and this is an extraordinary book. You know when you have a book and you just cover it just um, from the front to the back with little post-it notes? That's totally what happened here with this book. So... For me to just pull out one or two quotes, um, <laughs> it's a challenge. But but the thing, to sum this book up, what is it about? And why would anyone, I mean, who does this book for? What might be your question? Like, I'm not a neurotic. Well, it's a tongue-in-cheek kind of a title. And so the idea is that um, many of us, when we get into our sort of a left-brain rational state of mind where we separate things into things and we describe them, and we're so much into the whatness of things, we lose the howness. We lose the beingness, and this is a book about how that happens and why it occurs and how we can start enjoying that journey of life where you look out the window of the car or look out the window of your train or bus and just enjoy the scenery so much better by being present and being in a state of beingness rather than if you're constantly asking, are we there yet? You know, and this is, you know, parents will understand that one because <laughs> when you're driving with kids, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Boy, it can drive you nuts. But yet this is what our left brain often does to us on that journey of life. Are we there yet? Do we have the promotion yet? Are we there yet? You know, is my, the person I'm dating going to propose marriage to me? You know, are we there yet? It, it's sort of that question. And I, this is my take on the book. Um, he doesn't actually bring up the how are we there yet. Uh, instead, this book is filled with wonderful little visual um, kind of games, if you will, or illusions to show how we tend to assume things about the way our mind and our brain works that's not really true to the way consciousness really operates. So this book blends science and mysticism which I totally love, and points out that the idea of science is not at odds with mysticism, but instead, um, and I would agree with that, because you can't make the awareness of space into a thing. And this is what 
the author, I'm, I'm actually reading a quote from the book right now, page 96, and it says, uh, science mostly deals with things, much like being able to see for yourself that two circles are the same size in a given optical illusion, or that two lines are parallel, there will be no need to argue about the nature of these experiences. During these states of consciousness, one sees how things are perfect just the way they are, which is the deeper understanding. The efforts, needs, and goals of the egoic mind become secondary, even if they take up more conscious time. So this, I think the key to the magic in this book comes from really experiencing the sense of playfulness that naturally arises when you think beyond dualities between, you know, instead of right and wrong and all that black and white. And you get free from all kinds of categories entirely. And so if you're wondering how on earth can a book on consciousness sidestep categories, um, then think of that Zen koan where the Zen master asks the student to imagine the sound of one hand clapping. <laughs> There's a long tradition in Eastern philosophy of recognizing the complementary role of nothingness to somethingness. It, it shows up in the yin-yang symbols. It's part of every aspect of Eastern art, literature, philosophy, and thought. And then in the West, there's this common assumption that to be conscious, which literally means to know with, that implies a self, and that being conscious is to be a self that knows. This is the beginning of duality. And for me, it's a big deal when I read books on consciousness, is how do the authors deal with this idea of duality versus um, non-duality, this holism. And so... This is a non-dual exploration of consciousness in this book, and I love the way this book points out right from the start that psychology is dead in the sense that psychology has overlooked the role of the interpreter. It's presuming that all that need be examined in order to understand consciousness is part of the mind and brain that reasons, analyzes, and makes sequential choices. But what's brilliant about this book is that this shows there's a category error of epic proportion when we presume that by studying that which reasons and categorizes, we are seeing all of consciousness there is. So it's kind of like a mapping error, like where the way that you might look for your lost keys under the street light. It's the only place bright enough to look. And so another way to view all of this howness versus whatness is that people who live by the, the howness of living, if you've ever watched Star Trek, this book brings up the example of Captain Kirk, and he just does things by gut feeling, by, by the howness of it, whereas Spock is tr- struggling along and doing the left brain whatness. And often that howness approach is brilliant because it accesses levels of integrated holistic consciousness which far surpass anything any individual ego personality could possibly handle. So this is a cool. brilliant book. Yeah, I love it. The Neurotics Guide to Avoiding Neurotics Guide to Avoiding Enlightenment by Chris Niebauer, PhD. Very good. Julie, what do you you need to wrap up fairly quickly? Yep. Okay. So to wrap up, I have a two Well, not wrap up, but present yes. fairly quickly. To, ra- yeah. to wrap up for me, I have a twofer. Uh, and when I say that, I have two um, perpetual calendar books, meaning they have 365 um, easy to digest wisdoms, convenient day by day format wisdoms. One is by Tama Keeves, and it is called A Year Without Fear, 365 Days of Magnificence. And uh, Tama Keeves, people may recognize the name. Her previous 
well-received book was called Inspired and Unstoppable, and I think uh, Lamisha Cerf, one of our other reviewers, talked about it on a previous roundtable. And uh, so she, Tama actually left a successful career as a lawyer to devote her life to teaching success strategies. Um, so she sort of is a, a model. She walks her talk. And, again, it is a, a perpetual calendar, and uh, each day has words of wisdom uh, about success and overcoming fear, not bump-in-the-night fear, but fear from the, keep, the things that keeps us from believing in ourselves and knowing our goals and achieving our goals and so forth. The other is called Prosperity Every Day, a daily companion on your journey to greater wealth and happiness. And this is by Julia Cameron, also well-known. She's been an active artist for 30 years. And uh, she, her work has always been on the creative process. And, uh, you know, her, her book, Claim to Fame, was the artist's way. And this is a continuation of her work on the creative process as it relates to financial manageability. And uh, so, again, 365 reflections on prosperity and what money means to us, uh, uh, to the creative personality, symbolically and, and tangibly. And I, I really enjoy these uh, these perpetual calendar books. I love to put them in the bathroom because, you know, I'm there every day. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it, it really can be a jump start. You know, we were talking earlier about getting to know ourselves and making that commitment. And I find that these, these little pearls of wisdom, these sound bites, can really be a jump start for me and set the tone for my day or for my meditation or just set me on a particular path of self-inquiry that it can be really fruitful. So these both uh, come out in January of 2015. So I know Christmas, uh, not speaking about Christmas, would make one groan right now. However, they probably would be really good gifts if people are looking for something to uh, give to loved ones. So again, A Year Without Fear by Tama Keeves and Prosperity Every Day by Julia Cameron. Both really great resources. Cool. Very good. Yeah. Cynthia. Yes. Oh, good. Well, I've got a fourth book, and it's one that all of us here are familiar with. <laughs> it's called What Wags the World? Tales oh. of Conscious Awakening. Yes. And Yay. what a coincidence. <laughs> We've got both of the authors Yay. here today. Miriam Knight and Julie Clayton with a foreword by Urban Laszlo. So this is, I consider this to be the perfect primer for the rising tide of consciousness because the way I see it, we're in the state of the world where people get so concerned about everything from global warming to shortage of resources. You know, there's so much concern about where are we going next? And this is really, truly a book of visionaries who... Um, and, and talk about gems, just to riff off what Julie Clayton was just saying there a minute ago. It's so amazing to get a book full of pearls of wisdom that you can just take into your life. And sometimes um, these short little stories are perfect because you can pick this book up at any point. I like to do that sometimes, especially with spiritual books. And you'll read exactly what you need to read because each of the interviews with dozens of forward-thinking visionary authors 
which include people like Anita Morjani, Bernie Siegel, Cindy Dale, Eva Herr, Foster Gamble, Jeffrey Hopp, Georgina Cannon, Greg Braden, and so many more, um, including J.D. Messenger, um, Julia Sante, Kingsley Dennis, Meg Blackburn Lucy, Paul Von Ward, Penny Pierce, Peter Russell, and Larry Dossie, and uh, just many, many more that I can, I'm not going to read a whole list of them. But the point is, in just a few pages, each of these visionaries is able to share their transformative experience that really turned things around. So they started to see the view of nature, of reality differently. And I think that's the key, is just recognizing there is something going on here that's so much more than what we've been taught in school, what we've been told. And, and then further, the, the, you've got uh, the authors who we happen to have here. <laughs> Thank you. Miriam Knight and Julie Clayton share insights. Um, you know, They ask the question, what insight did you have as a result, and how did it affect what you do now? And this is where it really takes off, because the individual um, authors and visionaries are able to really describe, for example, how um, Peter Russell had an insight that people who are really interested in consciousness are the people who look at consciousness firsthand. And so he, he noticed that there's something that spiritual adepts and yogis and mystics know and that somehow evades attempts by neurologists and scientists who might be poking and prodding with electrodes in the brains. You know, th- those kind of pokes and prods don't really get at the real truth. And so Russell noticed that all the problems that we face, uh, whether it's personal or social or ecological, come back to human consciousness. So that's an example from the book. And then each uh, little section wraps up with their message, which is just the gems, those little pearls of wisdom that they like to share with the reader. And I think those are brilliant. I, I think I could feel it. This is where the heartfelt feeling of the beauty of this comes from. And just to get the sense of um, being kind to others because in some sense they are you, is, is what Dr. Larry Dossie pointed out. And getting into that oneness concept that we're all connected. This is a brilliant book. It's It's got so many gems in, in a very condensed, easy-to-read format that it would be a perfect gift for anyone coming, like, Julie keeps pointing out, we're coming into the holiday season, and this is something that I think it's accessible, and it's, it's, it's just beautiful because it describes individual experiences, so it doesn't come across as preachy, but instead it, it's uh, an invitation for people to explore a little bit more deeply what is life all about. What, what I'm thinking, what I was thinking is that it gives people a context in which to, to really validate experiences that they may have had themselves. And the other comment I wanted to make, and first of all, thank you so much for, for getting it. Uh, I, I really, um, you know, when you write a book, you're, you're not sure how it's going to be received and, and when it's actually received the way you intended it, it's so validating. But the other thing I just wanted to point out is that the people in the book did not start out life as visionaries. They started out life as, as, you know, as, as doctors, as engineers, as military people who had absolutely no particular spiritual orientation. And somehow the universe knocked on their door and spoke to them in a way that just blew open their consciousness, that awakened them. And that's why we call it Tales of Conscious Awakening. 
And, and this gets to my idea of um, this rising tide of consciousness that's happening right now. So I don't know if you agree with me or disagree, but certainly from the readers that come to my website and share stories about reality shifts, quantum jumps, that kind of thing, synchronicities, healings, more and more people are starting to recognize these are normal things. And so um, it's just, exa- I love this book, What Wags the World. Because just like you say, Miriam, these people did not start off as yogi from birth. You know, <laughs> they weren't like the wise Buddha baby that always said exactly the right thing. These are regular everyday people who reached a pivotal turning point, a transformation in their lives, where they really started to see there's something much bigger going on. And I think that is the invitation. So readers um, can read it and feel safe just exploring that journey. It's an armchair exploration of all these different amazing journeys that people have had. And so it it then hopefully can inspire people to maybe get a little bolder about sharing or going further in their own journey to find out who they really are. (sighs) Julie, you have one minute for a comment. Okay, one minute for comment. A plug. I am doing a plug for New Consciousness Review. So for all the listeners who are interested in these books and other books, um, we have, we want reviewers. We want you. If you want to get some fabulous books, often ahead of their publication, and love to write and would like to write some reviews for us, please go to our website and get in touch with us. We would love to have you join the team. Or you can even just email Julie directly at reviews at ncreview.com. We'd love, love to hear from you. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Everybody and his auntie is now writing a book about amazing experiences they've had. So in order to do justice to these books, we need your help, please. <laughs> Well, next week, our guest is going to be Adam Hall talking about a fascinating awakening memoir um, called Earthkeeper. Absolutely amazing book. I can't put it down. And I really want to thank Julie and um, Cynthia for, for their fantastic insights. It's been lovely having you on the show today, ladies. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Pleasure as always. (laughs) (laughs) So do join us next week. And in the meantime, visit our website, ncreview.com. I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.